Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. We are somewhere in the high 50s in this episode. I'll have to go back and check. But I am thrilled to welcome on Monique Houston. She is, among many things, the VP in Spirits Portfolio at Winebow. Uh, she's been a keeper of the Quake, a sherry enthusiast, um, a lover of agave spirits, the scotch. And I'm bringing her on today, among many things, to talk about sherry. And we'll get to that. We've got a couple of things to get to first, but first, welcome. Welcome. Thank you, David. That was a good intro. I'm going to keep that one. I'm going to turn it into like the ringer on my phone or something. That's fine. I could do it much better if I actually, read, <laughs> you know, what I had written out. Um, that was mostly spontaneous. But uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, just to give people introduction, I, a couple episodes ago, I had on Scott Bruno from um, Scotch Test Dummies, but also now Scotch and Whiskey Society. And I should note now Scotch and Whiskey Society is now an official uh, sponsor of the podcast. So thank you to them. But I reached out to Scott and I said, you know, I've got this question. I really want to dig more into Sherry and figure out how it became important to the whiskey industry, why it's so important to it, what people are using it for. Do people still drink Sherry? You know, is the age of Fraser gone where he's coming in and offering Niles a Sherry? Um, which kind of, you know, you'll tell me, but it kind of looked like maybe an Amontillado to me. But we'll see. Um, and I really need someone who knows what they're talking about with this. Who's that's it. Yeah. I'll try. Um, okay, we'll try. We'll try. Um, but Scott wrote back in maybe 10 minutes and he said, Monique is the person. So no pressure. I'm but- a good, I'm a good bridge, I would say, between the two things. I love, I love Sherry. I lived in Spain for a couple of years and um loosely worked in the industry there. So that was really helpful to actually kind of submerge. Um, in the language and the culture and um, Hedeth is a, is a small place, you know, so you get kind of like, like small town. It was, um, it was really interesting, but if I liked Sherry before I completely fell in love with it, just living there. And I would highly recommend, I mean, anyone go over and spend some time in Southern Spain and, and, um, learn more about the interaction, the food, the culture. It's like you course Sherry with every meal. And um, food pairings are, are just absolutely incredible. And then you come back and you're so excited about sherry and you wonder why no one drinks sherry in the United States anymore and why you mm-hmm. don't see it in every bar because it is, it is unbelievably good with food. But really, if you love whiskey, you get those flavors. I mean, if you're into sherried whiskey, you're somebody that was drinking McAllen 18, 20 years ago, sure. um, or a beautiful, heavily sherried, you know, Oloroso finished whiskey now. You already love those flavors. You just might not have had as much exposure, you know, to sherry. Absolutely. I mean, sherry is the way that, uh, for me, that's the way that I got into Isla. Um, cause I needed, I got into the smoke part through Highland park and then the, uh, rest of it needed a little sherry kick. Um, but now, I mean, one of my favorite bottles, I've got a Kalila 12 year old that was finished the entire time in sherry casks, Highland park, 16 year old, all in sherry casks. And, um, it's, it, I've loved exploring it because you get these completely different flavors from all of them. Of course, not all of the categories of sherry are even used for whiskey uh, maturation or finishing, but it is being seen more and more. It's been seen in the Scotch world now for a couple of decades, but we're starting to see it in the American whiskey. And I will say that while we're talking, I'm drinking uh, from Dancing Goat Distillery in Wisconsin. Uh, They're the Spaniard release, which is a corn whiskey finished in Oloroso Sherry. Uh, it's 121 proof and it is delicious. It's a beautiful color. 
I know nobody I know, can right? see us right now. I am drinking I know, a, a Springbank 15. Okay. I think Springbank at 15, 21 years old in, in Sherry is absolutely stunning and just really, really well balanced and one of my favorite single malts. So that's what I decided to start with in honor. Hey, absolutely. I, I figured I'd go a little out of the box with this one, but it was either this it, or the Kalila. So yeah, you can do that next. You can't start with Pete. I've got a PD one next too. Okay. So, you know, I'm going to jump on that before I forget. <laughs> um, so the last uh, podcast I was on was someone else's podcast, my friend, John at embellish pod. He had me on for about almost four hours. Um, if you can make it through, it's a really good conversation, but towards the end, I was telling him about this discovery, quote unquote, think I made for Pete. So, you know, usually with tastings, Pete always goes at the end. You never put anything after Pete. But I think I found a way around that completely by accident. So I was trying a couple of different whiskeys from a distillery in Pennsylvania, and some of their stuff is peated, some of it is unpeated. So of course I went in the normal direction. And I happened to be uh, cleansing my palate with either saltines or pretzel salt or salsines or pretzels. And I got to the end of the bag. I had one more to go. And I just started eating the salt from the bottom of it because I'd like to do that sometimes. Um, I don't know how I don't have high blood pressure because I just love salt. But I was tasting it and I was eating the salt and suddenly the smoke and the phenols started to dissipate from my palate. And I looked at, I was like, this can't be a coincidence. That's like, Pete never leaves your palate. You have to wait until it's ready to leave. So I looked it up and apparently one of the ways to extract phenols in a chemical structure is to expose it to um, chloride salts, which NACL, typical table salt, is exactly what it did. So um, we might have discovered- You got the workaround. It's also yeah. though, Pete, Pete can be, you know, Pete is an earthy tone. Smoke mm -hmm. is a byproduct of using peat. So whiskey yep. can also be peaty without being smoky. Mm -hmm. And smoke very often is that lingering note. And you've got lots of different kinds of peat. I mean, peat comes from different peat bogs all over the world. Peat from Tasmania in particular, which I've had a lot of experience with whiskeys, you know, peated whiskeys from Tasmania. They're actually not very smoky. They actually mm -hmm. can be very fruity and floral and um, actually blow kind of florals and almost like a potpourri note off. And so if I, our company used to import Lark um, from Tasmania, Bill Lark single malt, and I actually started my tastings with that. And people just thought it was crazy that you would start a tasting with a peated whiskey, but it was a good lesson in the difference between peat and smoke. So it really, it does come down to phenols, the type of phenol, the amount of phenol. Um, and two, sometimes like a really bold, round, viscous, port matured or maybe a PX matured whiskey can actually fare really well after a peated whiskey. So, mm -hmm. you know, you kind of always set up a flight, I don't know, in, in a classic way, but it might surprise you. So I, I end up finding myself bouncing around all over the place and trying them in a different order before I decide how I would group them in front of someone else. That's, I feel like most of my career, I've just done a million scotch tastings or whiskey <laughs> tastings, beer tastings, but you have to go through those flights a number of times and be mindful, like you said, of the food. Is it purposeful? Is it for neutrality? Is it, you know, whatever, but then you might change your mind. You might put them in a different order, you know, especially Winebow, my company, we are a uh, importer and distributor of spirits and wine. So we're trying to sell things to mm. bars and, and um, restaurants and, and you know, liquor stores and clubs and things like that. So we really want to put things in front of a buyer in the way that they are all going to show 
best. And so sometimes that means changing the order of something in a strange way that you wouldn't expect. Absolutely. And I've always wondered, because an exception to that rule of peat at the end is what if you're doing a flight of all peated whiskeys? Mm-hmm. It's nothing at the end. So then you gotta, yeah. then I probably start like low PPM and you know, if it's like mainland versus island versus isla you know or something mm-hmm. like that yeah yes yeah, so start with the mainland go to the maybe the lowlands next and then over to the islands and finish with the isla yeah. yeah pete is okay so we've got now two episodes two more episodes two to more do because there's another um because pete is another thing i really want to go into i want to do a tasting series to expose people to it and it's really everything you just said the the fact that pete does not equal smoke byproduct versus source uh, it's not all band-aids and rubber and iodine. Like I got into Pete through Highland Park, which I know I've said before on the podcast. So I'm sorry for the 30th time that I've said that. But um, there's, you know, that's a heather smoke as opposed to a maritime seaweed type of smoke. And then there's Japanese and yeah, Danish smoke. I love Stowning and it's a completely different profile. So um, that's a like I said, that's probably multiple things. But I want to do a tasting on that just to show people. You don't have to like everything. Like I, I cannot get through Lafroig. It's just too much for me. But last year's cartridge release with the heavy PX finishing, I could get through because it was just enough to kind of uh, round out what I needed and and hide what I couldn't handle. Yeah, so, I get that. Well, I mean, that's also why there are so many of them and why it's so fascinating. It's not everything is intended for everyone, and and that that works out really really well. Yeah, and Pete's not. It's not limited to. Uh, outside the u.s either i mean spirits of french lick has their whiskey witch which has indiana peat in it and you wouldn't think of indiana as having peat but it does and it's in the right we've got peat in new york we've got peat in pennsylvania we've got peat all over so um that's a huge topic of exploration that i want to tackle um right now i'm kind of in my american single malt phase so i gotta tackle all that first and then move on but we'll get there We'll get there. There's a great book as you're preparing for Pete. If you haven't read Pete Smoke and Spirit by Andrew Jeffords, it is incredible. You can read straight through it almost like a novel. If you get older copies of it, you know, go on like eBay or go to a bookstore or something. There's some awesome pictures of folks working on Isla in the seventies and eighties. You'll recognize like a Mickey heads who just um, Mm -hmm. retired from Ardbeg digging Pete in his twenties. I mean, it's like you look through, it's amazing. It's such a good book. I, I will definitely pick that up. And all right, so this will be a good transition from where we're going. So uh, your, as is on your bio, your two favorite places in the world, Scotland and Oaxaca, mm-hmm. both quite known for smoky spirits, even though we know that, you know, we'll get into, we know that that's not everything there, but that's kind of what they're known for. So um, where did this love of, of both places come from? a good question. They're both just really special places. I've been um, traveling to Scotland since the late 90s and um, at one point in time kind of helped lead tours there and everything else. And I'm kind of more of a small town, you know, Midwestern gal and I don't have an accent or anything, but Isla is just incredibly special. I mean, if you've not been there, you know, I, I don't like to fly there. I don't see the point. I like to take the ferry. So you've got a couple hour long ferry ride with a gorgeous bar, you know, like great drams representing all the distilleries kind of look around on the ferry and you can almost always catch 
someone who works at one of the distilleries. So often it's like, if you know what, you know, this distillery manager looks like, or this, you know, whatever, it's like, oh, hey, there's, there's a captive audience for the next two hours. Let me go chat to this guy who can't escape me, get all my questions answered. But, you know, people on the island are super, super warm. And, um, you know, the island is only, I think, somewhere between five and 7,000 people most of the time. And then during the um, Isla Festival, um, the Fijil, the festival of, you know, music and whiskey and culture, you're tens of thousands of people, you know, people caravanning and camping, but everybody makes it work. And, you know, when you arrive there, everything is geared towards ensuring that people that love scotch, that love Isla or are into exploring that style of whiskeys are have a nice roof over their heads, are well cared for, feel welcome, are well fed, you know, can find a driver. Like it, it all just is incredibly engaging and really, you know, heartwarming. Um, but I mean, I had some challenges with really peaty whiskeys at the beginning too. I've never had an issue with, I find that peat from Isla tends to fall into kind of a couple of camps. Like you've got some that are a little, just lower on the peat scale, lower, you know, um, phenolic parts per million, really approachable. So things more like Bunahaven or Bamor. And then you've got the really peaty ones. So from um, Ardbeg to Lefroig to Octomore and some, you know, I find Octomore to be a lot of smoke and it's really intense, really beautiful. Lefroig, like you were talking about before, some people will get that kind of like tire iodine band-aid. And then Ardbeg for me is very meaty, barbecue, fatty, leather. And I, I just loved that from the beginning. I just thought it was the most fascinating thing. I studied wine before I studied whiskey. And so to be able to get these really interesting, meaty kind of red wine going into, you know, Burgundy and Bordeaux, mm-hmm. it's just, it was just really, really incredible to me. And, and to your point as well, they play really well with sherry. Mm-hmm. I can balance out a lot of really heavy, heavy sherry notes. Um, but it's also, I mean, typically we say, or people have found or studied or um, that women can smell and taste more than men. Mm -hmm. Um, we don't necessarily know why that is. I feel like it's kind of a, um, hunter versus gatherer. I feel like, you know, men, the job was like, if it's moving, hit it over the head and then we're going to eat it. You know, and for women, it was like, I have to know the difference between poison and not poison. And so you kind of Mm -hmm. like developed these, these different senses of taste and smell. And, um, I liken it to, you know, a lot of people maybe in high school had a bad, whiskey experience. It probably wasn't very expensive whiskey, but it probably was American whiskey. And maybe it was like 10, 15, 20 bucks a bottle. Mm-hmm. And you, and Isla whiskey couldn't be farther from that experience. It's just kind of like a complete 180. And so I found, you know, I ran a pub for a long time that specifically if women came in and said, Oh, I don't like whiskey. I had this terrible such and such experience when I was 18, I could put an art bag or something in front of them um, or a spring bank or, a, you know, whatever. And they'd go, Oh, this is, this doesn't smell like whiskey. This doesn't taste like whiskey. You know, I don't know what it is and I'm not sure that I like it, but wow. You know, there's a lot going on. And, um, it seemed like an easier gateway drug, especially for women, which I, I was always really interested in getting more women comfortable, you know, specifically with scotch. So I love it. And the Island's just amazing. Uh, you're, I mean, you're right on all I shouldn't say you're right. That's condescending. And I don't mean it that way. You're, I mean, you're right that women, they just do. You just have better sense of smell than us guys do. It's, un- you, you can't argue, you can't argue with it. I really don't think you can argue with it. Um, and uh, my wife who does not drink whiskey at all, unless it's in like a whiskey ginger or a whiskey sour, 
um, I won't give her any peated stuff, but if it's uh, something else and I'm just like, I can't figure out what this note is. It sounds so familiar. It tastes and smells so familiar. I'll just hand it over to her and she'll put it about a foot from her face and say, oh yeah, this is what that is. And I'm like, God damn it. How did you do that? And like I said, she doesn't like any of this stuff. She's, she'll drink wine and, and ciders, but not um, whiskey. So uh, anything peated, she's like, oh God, what is that? But maybe one day. Maybe one day. I, yeah. I am with you though. With, I'm trying to do a, um, like a walkthrough. I was telling you before I was trying to do a tasting set, but I also want to do a walkthrough for myself of the Isla distilleries and really understand what the profiles are. Knowing I'm not going to like everything, but just understanding. So Bowmore, after I did it, it came off as very um, ashy to mm-hmm. me. Whereas uh, Kalila, I got what you were describing is that really fatty, you know, pork and, um, you know, sticking your face in a smoker kind of thing where the fat's just dripping onto the coals and vaporizing. And I loved it. Um, Ardbeg has kind of been in the middle for me. I get, I can sometimes get more meatiness and sometimes a little less depends on the release. And they've got so many, um, lagas about my max on the peat, but I love Octomore, as you were saying, it's much more smoky than what we think is PD. And um, even taking into account that the PPM levels are probably measured pre-malting, let alone pre, um, let alone post-distillation. Absolutely. Yeah. So even taking that, it probably is the most peated, whatever that means, if you're measuring by PPMs, I guess, but whatever. I do really like Octomore is the point. And, and the Black Art series that they did as well. And uh, the I've been trying to do that because I want to understand. Now that I can deal with Pete and understand it, I want to really understand what are these profiles and can I identify them? Because mm-hmm. I suck at identifying. I'm, I'm good at identifying flavors. I suck at identifying what distillery something is from. That, some of that is bullshit. I mean, it's crazy to me that somebody, you know, 20 plus years of, of, of you know, tasting whiskey and sitting on tasting panels and stuff that I would be like, oh, this reminds me so much of the Ardbeg, da-da-da, you know, the um, original Eric Nambiish, but not possibly the one two years later. It's, it's we can continue to identify scent, you know, scent is most closely linked to memory. So a particular scent, if it's really distinct, and that's a through line for something, absolutely. But to be able to say like release on release or year on year or something else, I mean, there's so few people, it's, people would be shocked. I mean, especially in blind tastings and a number of the panels that I do, um, this most recent one that we just did, we just held the inaugural um, New Orleans Spirits Competition, which was in conjunction with a, a nonprofit Tales of the Cocktail. And we were short some people. So I volunteered, was in the back room on the last day, helping flight things and direct traffic. And I was watching people taste and I knew what it was. And it was mind boggling when people go, oh, I know what this is. This is this, you know, da, 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 da. And I'm like, okay, wait until you know, the best tasting rye in that competition was Rittenhouse. People were flabbergasted. Mm -hmm. Like, how often have you tasted it? How often do you drink it? But do you go back and really break it down and, you know, know what Rittenhouse is? Probably not. I mean, people, people are shocked. And and granted, I mean, David, there are things that are extremely distinct that you'll always know, you know, exactly what it is, but, but uh, yeah, that's BS. 
I am so glad to hear you say that because now I don't feel as bad about sucking at that. So that's no, I mean, the thing is, it's more about that scent memory and flavor memory. And so to me, it's eat every food you can get your hand on, eat, eat every like what's in season right now, like fruits and vegetables and da da da, like eat them in isolation and eat them raw and eat them sauteed and eat them this way, you know, like all those different things and then be conscious of it. Like, mm-hmm look at it, you know, like, like a physical sense of it. What does it smell like? What does it taste like? And isolate all those things Mm -hmm. and commit to letting that like imprint on your brain. And that's the only way to build that sense. I mean, is to build that, that memory bank, you know, of all those things. I mean, it's hard. And you, you know, like if you've been to Scotland, there's notes that exist in Scotland. Like if you're talking about, um, Scottish tablet or treacle or mm-hmm. like, have you had Scottish tablet before? Would I know it by a different name? No, it's called Scottish that just, tablet. It nope, looks like vanilla fudge. So it comes okay. in squares, but it's like a little bit drier and it's kind of butterscotchy. It's kind of like a roasted sugary. It's amazing with whiskey. It's really, really good, but it's called tablet. And if you've never had it and you can order it through like Scottish gourmet USA or something like that. Um, but if you haven't had it or treacle or like in, um, in Scotland, Smarties, are not like what we think of as Smarties. They're like a generic M&M. That, yes, that what I knew. Treacle, right. uh, treacle I'm more familiar with too. Yeah. yeah. So there's just like some things where you're like, oh, I know exactly what that is. But like, if you haven't mm-hmm. had it, how would you ever identify it? I also, it drives me crazy to read tasting notes that are so snotty and distinct that you read mm-hmm. it and go, I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, just like the colors, like mm-hmm. an amber, an amberana sunset in Queens, you know, on a Monday night, like, right. I don't, I don't know what that means. Yeah. Uh, the one that I always think of is maybe last year, um, Woodford came out and, you know, Woodford's got the whole 200 plus notes on the tasting wheel and all that, which in itself is ridiculous. <laughs> no one's tasting 200 things. If you are, you don't have the time to taste all those things before the whiskey is either gone, evaporated, or <laughs> your pal is dead. Right. Um, but one of the notes was like, it was a golden citrine. And I'm like, it's a really, really fancy term for it was yellowish, you know, like yellowish doesn't really read well. Right. It doesn't, Um, but you, but you can find something in between. That's a mm -hmm. little more to to your point. It's a little more understandable and relatable Mm -hmm. to someone. And I, I mean, I know I expanded my my vocabulary mostly by tasting, but also by reading reviews. Um, I think this fits particularly from, uh, UK based publishers where they would have, especially they would focus on all these English and Scottish desserts and, and foods and things that were very unique to the aisles. And I'm like, I've never tasted these things before. So, you know, some of them I had tasted, I mean, I've never had a whiskey that tasted like haggis. I do like haggis. If I don't know what I'm eating, I like haggis. Um, thankfully I never had a whiskey that tasted like it, but I could identify that as, okay, it's earthy. It's awful ish. You know, there's, there's something to it. Um, but one of the ones that got me was Petrichor, mm-hmm. which I understand what it is. And I was told by, I think it was by, by Lou Bryson actually, that he, that was used because you have 80 words in a review and you can say it tastes, it smells or tastes like the earth or the dirt after a rainstorm as things dry out, but that's a lot of words and petrichor is just one. So I, I get that. And whenever I use it, I'm like, should I, do I have room here? 
Should I really explain what that is? Oh, also, I was walking down the street in Chicago on a super hot day and it rained the next day. And I have to remind myself of what that word means. I think it's a beautiful word and it's very distinct. And even thinking about it can call up that scent memory. I mean, that's kind of when you know that you've got it. But I was walking down the street the other day as it started to rain and the more, you know, like rain hitting the warm ground. And I just thought, okay, petrichor, like, and just kind of like be in the moment, take in the mm-hmm. smell, take in the feeling of all of it and just remind yourself what it is. So it's just, mm-hmm. it's about being mindful. Yeah. It also is hard to shut that off. And I know you write a lot yes. of tasting notes. So it's like, sometimes not so fun, probably not with your partner or, or like non-industry people out to dinner that are like, oh my God, can you not just like drink and eat and enjoy it? I, I can, <laughs> I can shut it off when I need to for that. But otherwise, like I want to taste everything. I want to write my notes on and be like, what am I getting this time? What am I getting the second time? And compare, because I, I love that. And one of the other ones that I wanted to hit on, and then we'll we'll move on. But look, we've already established we're probably going to have you on multiple times because this is just fun. I'm having fun. I hope you're having fun. I'm having fun. Okay. Um, one that I got hooked on was Sultana's, mm-hmm. which, you know, apples to apples is just golden raisins. But, and I put that to, to John as well when I was on his podcast, but he, and I said, if I'm being hoity-toity about it, I could just say golden raisins. Like people are going to have to look up what a sultana is. They're going to know what a golden raisin is. But he's, he pointed out to me the reverse, which is there are connotations to it. You know, a sultana I think of as this very um, sweet, decadent, and, and complex white, dried white grape flavor. Whereas if I say golden raisin, I'm thinking more like the boxes of, I forget what brand it is, but the boxes of raisins you get as a kid and you just pick them out. And there is a difference between those two. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, it might be nitpicky or seem really specific to some people, but for me, those are different notes. I, I'm with you. It also, though, this goes back to memory, David, is like those are called sun-made raisins in the red box. Thank you. My, yes. my mom convinced us for a long time that that was dessert. Mm-hmm. And that's a trick. And like, when you find out that dessert is actually like chocolate and, you know, like cupcakes, then you feel really tricked. And so I don't have the happiest memories of raisins. Also put raisins in my carrot cake. I'm going to kill you. Like not cool. But then Sultana, it's just, it just sounds, yeah, it sounds decadent. That's the right word yeah. for it. And when I've had it in desserts, you know, in the UK, it's like perfectly placed and they're wonderful. And I've always yeah. had positive experiences with it. So it's like Sultana makes me smile and raisin makes me think like disappointment. Yeah, that, that's, <laughs> hey, that's fair. I'll, I'll have the raisins in the carrot cake. Just hold the coconut because that'll, it won't kill me, but it'll definitely make it really unpleasant. Yeah. Um, mean. Doesn't, doesn't belong. Yeah. Anyway. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think of like a, a Sultana, you can also plump it with something. So I can, I've had a couple notes where it's like a Sultana. If you, um, if you soaked it in a juniper flower gin, or if you soaked it in sauterne and just doubled up on those flavors and um, that, and that sensation of biting into a grape or raisin that's been rehydrated, that you get that intense grape flavor, but also whatever it's been rehydrated with. And those two work really well together. Um, So I am glad to hear that it's not in my head and that uh, someone with uh, objectively better, uh, olfactory senses is going to also pick up the same kinds of, of things. I am definitely going to order some Scottish tablet too. Oh, you got to do it. Addition to that book. Um, so I'm, I'm making a list because I always do with, with guests. I make lists and I write notes. Yep. So um, uh, the main topic for, for this episode that I wanted to bring you on for was, again, it's, it's Sherry. And um, if you're, 
listening and you're a drinker of American spirits, Scottish spirits, uh, any of the major five and all the other countries that produce whiskeys, um, I hope that you know what sherry is. But just in case, um, let's do a you know a quick rundown of, of what sherry is, and then we can kind of go into the categories of it afterwards. Yeah, so absolutely. Let you take um, it away. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, you don't want to go into it with too much depth. There are people who do it a hundred times better than I could. There's whole books on the topic. And again, to me, it truly does not click until you go. But in the very near term, I think really valuable if you find that you like sherried whiskeys. So whiskeys fully matured in sherry, any kind of sherry or um, finished in sherry is to get a hold of those bottles of sherry and taste them next to those whiskeys. So it's easy to find a bottle of Oloroso, certainly a Fino, even though that's less used, maybe a Montiato Palo Cortado. And PX is PX is kind of the classic one everybody thinks of, the one that's super raisiny, for lack of a better term. Um, but really, sherry is just, um, well, it's an aberration of a word that's like the town that's kind of the center of sherry production, which is J-E-R-E-Z, headeth. And so it's like an Americanized, anglicized version of that word is sherry. Um, it's a category of fortified wine. So if you think of fortified wine, what does the word fortification mean? It's literally like fortifying a castle. So you're going to put like little protections around your castle. So you have like a moat and a drawbridge and some buckets of oil. All those things are fortifications. So sherry at base, along with port and Madeira and, um, you know, vermouth, which is also aromatized, they're wines that are then fortified, strengthened with something to give them longer life. So if you just have like a still red wine or a still white wine, those are often gonna be bottled at 11, 12 to 14, 15%. If you open them, they're gonna be off in a couple of days. It's also sad. If you just have a bottle of wine sitting around for a couple of days, you need to get some more fronts and drink it up. But so when you fortify it, you're literally just trying to strengthen it to give it longer life. And so you typically will then add a distilled brandy to that wine to bump the alcohol percentage up to like the low twenties. And that can extend the life of that wine into, you know, a couple of months. And then hopefully if you're refrigerating it, maybe even a little bit longer. So the, the, I mean, that's, those are just the basics. There's really just a couple different grapes that it comes from. The still wine made from those grapes is not necessarily that exciting. This is wine that um, tends to be good for maturing as wine, but also good for distilling into brandy. And so it's the combination of the two that kind of makes it a little bit more exciting. Um, and then they mature well. So they stand up well to, to wood maturation, which if you're into just still wine, you know, some people really like an oaky Chardonnay. A lot of people don't, it can't withstand years of oak, you know, or, or red wines that you see now being aged in, in big oak barrels. They typically can just take like a touch of it, but not years of it, like right. a Solera system in, in sherry production um, can provide. So a few different styles. Um, the lightest is, is Fino and it is, you know, typically used as a, a pre-meal, you know, an aperitif style wine. It's amazing with oyster and you're just kind of salty and briny and light and bright. And you kind of have like little, really, really cold sips of it to get hungry. Um, and then you traditionally go into an Oloroso style, which is more known for being really nutty, um, can smell very sweet, but doesn't typically taste particularly sweet. It has been found over time to be just, um, I would say kind of the classic that people think of when they taste it. So it was the most widely consumed, probably 80% of the, the 
um, you know, consumers were drinking that through the 1700s, 1800s, um, you know, maybe up through early 1900s even. And with that, you had production of lots and lots of, um, lots of producers making it, but also lots of it maturing and then lots of barrels of it traveling, um, which made it as the most popular type, the easiest to get a hold of the barrels to mature spirits in, so to mature scotch in. And then really like the most fortified biggest of the basic types is Pedro Jimenez, um, the Jimenez with a, an X. So it's called PX for short, if you can't pronounce it. And that is like a big syrupy, raisiny bomb. And it's the nose that you really associate with sherry that just does. It just smells like squished up raisins or sultanas. Um, and you don't typically see full maturations in PX. It's really strong. So you'll see well done finishes, um, Oloroso kind of for the longest term maturation. And, and then, you know, maybe some things in Fino, maybe some in Palo Cortado, you know, maybe some in some other styles. So those are the basic basics. The Whiskey Ring Podcast is proudly sponsored by Impex Beverages. Impex imports premium and rare whiskey, gin, rum, mezcals, liqueurs, and cordials from all over the world, from Scotland to Japan to Israel, Belgium, and Wales. Whether it's Kilhoman, Pandaren, Port Escague, Glenallachy, Ohishi, Fukano, M&H, Ardnamurkin, Black Tot, and more, there's guaranteed to be something in the Impex portfolio you'll love. Impex also oversees some of the most prestigious independent bottlers in the game, including Single Malts of Scotland, Single Cast Nation, Adelphi Selection, and its own Impex collection. Take a look at their site, impexbev.com, or reach out if you're curious about their offerings. I'm proud to have many of their bottles on my shelves and love sharing them with friends whenever I can. Thank you to Sam and to the team for joining the Whiskering Podcast as guest and sponsor. And now, a word from our newest sponsor. The most exclusive whiskey in the world can't be bought in a store. Born in Edinburgh, the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society is the world's largest whiskey club, with over 30,000 members worldwide. They bottle each cask of whiskey as is, no diluting, no artificial coloring, or chill filtration. With new whiskeys released every week, the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society offers the opportunity to taste spirits straight from the cask. I've been a member for over two years now, and I've loved the chance to explore my favorite distilleries with truly unique offerings, in particular from distilleries 4 and 53, and discovering new single malts not available anywhere else. Not a Scotch fan? No problem. The Scotch Malt Whiskey Society releases 20-plus bottles each month to its members, including, yes, Scotch, but also including gin, bourbon, rum, and more. In fact, my favorite recent bottling was a corn whiskey, from the largest family-owned distillery in the U.S., aged 11 years in New Oak and bottled at cast strength. This is a bottling that people have clamored for for years, and it was only available to Scotch Malt Whiskey Society members. If you're interested in joining, the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society has graciously offered a discount to listeners of this podcast. Use code WRP, short for Whiskey Ring Podcast, at checkout for 20% off an annual membership at smwsa.com. That stands for Scotch Malt Whiskey Society of America. I will also be putting the link and code in my bio and show notes for this and upcoming episodes. Thank you to the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society for joining the Whiskey Ring Podcast as our newest sponsor. And please visit smwsa.com with code WRP 
for 20% off your annual membership. Yeah, I'm thinking back. I've definitely seen a couple in the uh, the lesser used categories, like the Fino, the Amontillado, the Palo Cortado. Um, but yeah, mostly you're probably going to be dealing with an Oloroso or a PX if, if you're drinking whiskey. And I mean, I, I love them both. I got to try them straight at a restaurant last year for the first time. And when you get to do that, it's really eye-opening as you're pointing out, you know, the, the, I think it was an, a Fino and then the Oloroso and the PX. The Fino, as you said, very bright, very, uh, not what you think of as a fortified wine, or at least not what I thought of. I was expecting something that was going to be richer, more like the Oloroso and the PX. And it was instead much brighter. Mm-hmm. And then, the Oloroso was exactly what I expected, thankfully, because I love I love Oloroso. Um, that sweetness on the nose that then turns into more of a dry sweetness. Uh, baking spices, red fruits, tons of red fruits. Um, a nuttiness from the rancio in the background, especially almonds and hazelnuts. I love that. And yeah, the PX was just, to me, it was just like syrup. It was, it was I think about a 20% ABV and just... I w- it was served room temperature and it was still syrupy. I can't imagine what it would be if it was chilled first. It would just be v- viscous as hell yeah. and probably delicious. Uh, but yes, you, uh, most of the ones we'll see, or you're going to use a PX for a finish, but Oloroso is going to be the main one for that long-term aging. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'd say too, I know it's kind of an expensive thought, you know, to go and buy bottles of sherry and maybe you can find half bottles, but if you get a group together that's into doing this as well, and you maybe have like an, one of, you know, eat one bottle, each of three expressions of scotch that are finished in that. And then a bottle, each of that, you know, you could do a tasting like that, which is really fun. And to your point, David, it's extremely eye-opening because I think people don't realize sometimes the notes coming from the scotch itself and mm-hmm. what it is actually like accumulating from the whiskey and the barrel. So there are a lot of people that associate, they love Oloroso matured scotches, but they're like, Oh, I actually, I just like Oloroso. Like I didn't know that all those things, those red fruits and the nutty notes and everything else that I was like assigning to the whiskey. It's because it's aged in a great sherry barrel. Right. And we're, you know, we're used to um, even as scotch drinkers, we're used to the malt, if it's put in an ex-bourbon barrel, which the majority of them are for part or all of the maturation, you're not going to get a lot from the barrel. You know, we get a little bit of the butteriness, maybe some of the uh, oak backbone, but most of it's going to come from the malt itself, just maturing over those years, especially if it's a second or third fill, you know, the, you get less and less from the cask. So in that case, you get that very pale color. What do you uh, think of generally as just a scotch? Um, I always go to like a Glenmorangie or Glenfiddich, where it's pretty pale, even at 12, 14, 16 years, and you get the maltiness. Add in sherry, and you start getting the redder amber hues and things like that. Um, and it does have a much better, it does a much better expression of the types of sherry. And I think malt uniquely among the grains most used for whiskey production, malt can really stand up to those. Mm-hmm. And even I've only seen maybe one or two that were full maturation PX to your point. It's just, it's too strong. It just overwhelms everything. But uh, with an Oloroso, like finding something that's a cast strength Oloroso finish for 12, 14 years or so is perfect for me. I love that match. Um, I got a, a 16, the, one of the Highland Parks, I was a 16 year old, all Oloroso matured from um, the whiskey exchange. And I can't wait to go back to London and get another one of those because or two, if there are any left, but the point being that 
in American whiskeys, we expect a lot to come from the barrel because that's supposedly where all the flavor comes, or 60, 80%, whatever it is, so the flavor comes from. Whereas in others, when you're using used barrels, be it ex-bourbon or ex-sherry, you are getting from the barrel, but it's highly dependent on what you're using. So with the, you know, so you were mentioning, that was a roundabout way of getting back to, you were mentioning earlier that um, sherry was transported. It was uh, heavily drunk in the 1700s, 1800s, even till relatively recently. It's since fallen out of favor, I think. And we can explore really why out that, of fashion. Out of fashion. That's really the better <laughs> way to put it. Yeah. And, and we can explore that too. Um, how did, was it just a natural progression that sherry became the vessel most used for whiskey maturation? Was it just coming down to those barrels being available? I mean, it comes down to the Scots being cheap. That's all <laughs> there is to it. Ask anyone you have on. So sherry and, and port and claret and Madeira and all those things were traveling over from those countries in transport casks, which are completely different from sherry casks now. So transport casks were still being used into the 1920s, 30s, maybe 40s. Much thicker staves. They were intended, you know, to be out on the high sea, you know, for many months coming over. Um, and they came over full of wine when that was still legal. I mean, when you didn't have to bottle, you know, in the country of origin to be able to keep the um, designations intact. So yeah. as we assign these DOs, part of it was it needs to be bottled here, which is great for those glass producers and for jobs in those countries and for keeping the integrity and, and the reason why you have the DO. But preceding that, and you'd have to look at the DOs for all those different categories, everything came over from those countries in massive volume to, you know, the middle class, to the wealthy all over the UK in those casks. And mm -hmm. nobody in the world outside of the US was drinking bourbon. There was no eye towards using American oak for anything. We weren't sending barrels of bourbon, I mean, really very many places because mm -hmm. people weren't really drinking that much whiskey. So it was more that you had this production of whiskey I mean, and going back a hundred years, all the, almost all the single malt was going into blends. Nobody was making single malt or vintage, you know, malts. It right. was grocers largely. So if you go back to the origins of, you know, Justerian Brooks and Johnny Walker and Dewar's, those were families of grocers, generational grocers that would receive in barrels of these fortified wines and the barrel fortified wine, just like now when you go to the store and you can go, um, you know, like get your own, like grab a bag or a container and get like nuts. You know, it's like that kind of thing. You went in with like your little jug mm -hmm. and you went and got sherry or, or port. And so they always had those casks and then they would actually get barrels of malt. And so let's just say, and this is a total exaggeration. This would probably not actually happen, but let's just say that you're John Walker and John Walker's son. And you get a barrel, you know, one week of, you know, Cardu and the next week, you know, you need another barrel of whiskey and you're grabbing a Tom and towel. And the next week, somehow you get a Talisker, you know, something that maybe is peaty briny. Your customers are kind of like, you have all these different things made from these same like ingredients and da, da, da. And so over time, they started picking out these strong qualities from these different single malt distilleries, started blending them together. Um, they legalized using column distilled essentially, essentially like more neutral grain spirit, you know, to kind of do the bulk, you know, the filling, the bulk spirit, and then start using those single malts as, you know, like the spices and the, and the salt and pepper. And then as they were blending things literally in the store, you'd have these sherry casks, pork casks, and, and the bulk of it was sherry. I mean, that was the consumption. That was what was inexpensive to drink. And, and it was Oloroso sherry and transport casks. The only 
place, you can really still see those, not surprisingly, is at Gordon McPhail. So if you go through Gordon McPhail in Elgin, I mean, that's why they, that's why they have 70 plus year old single malt to bottle for tens of thousands of dollars is because they're in transport casks and they've been, they filled those. So they would take those transport casks to McAllen, Glen Grant, Glen Livet, Strathyla, fill them. And now 70, 80 plus years on, they're still sitting on them. But that was kind of the last time those transport casks were coming. And these are really casks that, like you said, they're, they're thicker. They're not what we think of as a barrel for whiskey mm-hmm. today. It's No, they're over twice much- as big as a traditional bourbon barrel. Right. And, and not really, meant, it's not meant to impart flavor to the whiskey. It's meant to transport it. Like there might be some flavor it. transport, yeah. but that's really well, the first time it's used. There's going to be quite a bit of it. I think too, you brought up the point earlier and I, I think you're exactly right. Malt is a great canvas for sherry. It's a very different canvas than, than bourbon, you know, obviously a corn-based whiskey, but traditionally column distilled versus malt being copper pot distilled, you know, two or right. mostly two times. So there's this oiliness and this viscousness and this backbone of like all those things where a lot of that, I feel like kind of gets stripped out, you know, in a grain whiskey, like bourbon. And so it's, you know, it bourbon can't spend, I mean, in Kentucky, it can't spend 50 years in a sherry cask and expect to right. taste good. Like you might have a scotch that can survive that long. Absolutely. And that's why it drives me so crazy now seeing some of these sherry produce, uh, sorry, scotch producers rather, chill filtering the whiskey. And I know that's a whole other argument, but that's like, the fourth episode we're doing. I know, I know. <laughs> I, but I just, I look at it and I think malt has such a unique character to it that has that oiliness that can stand up. It's such a strong, it's a strong grain without necessarily being a strong flavor. It's not like it's going to overpower the sherry, but it's going to play really well together. And then you chill filter it and you're taking out all those oils that have you know, accumulated those fat soluble molecules and esters over the years. And it was like, what are you doing? Um, <clears throat> it's funny, David, like people um, who chill filter <laughs> will be very defensive of it and say it doesn't do anything. And right. all the people that don't do it say that it absolutely has a huge impact on it. I'm a, I'm totally a believer in non-chill filtration. And Me too. Yeah. I've been told multiple occasions, my reviews if, over the long term, mouthfeel is the biggest determinant for me of whether I'm going to like something. You know, if, if something is chill filtered when it's not supposed to be, <laughs> I'm going to notice it because it's just, it should have a viscous mouthfeel. It should have a mouthfeel period. If it just, yeah, mouthfeel, mouth, not having a mouthfeel yeah. can kill it. The other thing too, is that the, what are you left with when you taste something, the finish right? and the exactly. determining factor of how long the finish and how intense and how long those flavors stick around, you know, is going to be based on texture and viscosity. Yeah. And Oddly, this really works. I'm just coming back uh, as recording. I'm just coming back from a trip to Kentucky and Tennessee. And one of the places I stopped at was Jack Daniels. And as we're going through the tour and tasting different things, one of the things they pointed out was Gentleman Jack, which, you know, they do the regular chill, uh, not sorry, they do the regular uh, mellowing through the sugar maple charcoal, the regular 10 feet that they would do for any of the products. And then they do it again at the end of maturation through three feet instead of 10 feet, three feet of the sugar maple charcoal. And the guy literally said, and he was otherwise so good, except for this one thing. He said, if you notice you drink it and you know, it's very, very smooth. There's not much of a finish. And I'm just thinking to myself, then what's the point? Drink vodka. Like <laughs> there should be, there should be something you, it doesn't have to be super coating. It can vary depending on your taste, but 
I want to know that the whiskey has been there. I also, I just want to abolish like smooth is not a tasting note. It isn't really, you know, it's like, is it something smooth yep. versus not smooth? But oh my gosh, it drives me completely insane when somebody says, isn't this smooth? Like, isn't it the smoothest, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, no. I think it's, it's one of those terms that I'll, I'll put alongside um, young, mm-hmm. smooth and um, oaky. I think those mm. are my three things that I'm okay with you using them, but you have to explain what you mean. You know? I don't like it when people call their whiskey juice. It drives me bananas. The juice, okay, this juice, what we did with the juice, you buying this I'm, juice. I might slip up and use that once or twice. So I apologize in advance because <laughs> I do use that you. sometimes. I'll forgive you. I do use that sometimes. But uh, yeah, I, I'm okay with using those terms, but you've got to say like, if you're saying something is smooth, I want to know, does that mean that it has no proof burn? You know, it, there's no oak pepperiness or if it's oaky, do you mean it's creamy, peppery, woody? You know what? There's all these different things that oaky can mean or smooth can mean. And if you describe it, I'm good. Yeah, I'm with you. I totally get that. Mm-hmm. I think that, yeah, that is a really yeah. good way of looking at it. Um, I mean, back to sherry, I think the, the maybe one of the biggest misnomers is that people think that things that are aged in sherry barrels are aged in not transport barrels, but similar barrels to what they would have been matured in in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, even 80s. And going back not quite 100 years, you still would have largely been using Spanish oak, which is a, a different type of oak versus American oak. And you still would have been pulling, there still would have been enough consumption to drive real, you know, Oloroso sherry being aged in a Solera system and getting a hold of some of those really like intensely sherry barrels getting pulled out of a system after 20, 40, 60, 80 years of service. Mm-hmm. And now most of the barrels that are used in sherry production are it's almost to oversimplify it. It's like a lot of the companies that use a lot of sherry maturation, they're actually cutting down the trees in the Ozarks, sending American oak over to Spain, having it seasoned with perfectly good quality Oloroso sherry for six months or eight months. And then that sherry, you know, probably could be bottled and used for cooking sherry, probably just as well. The rent has been paid, dumped down a drain. And then those barrels are shipped to Scotland to mature a lot of whiskey. So that's a very different animal, you know, so it's no longer mostly Spanish oak. It's actually very little Spanish oak, but it's mostly American oak now. So you're still going to get some of those notes that you get from a fresh bourbon barrel. I mean, you're still going to get pantones, lactones, you know, coconutty things, all that kind of stuff can still come through in sherry and it manifests itself a little bit differently. Um, but, but I think that's kind of a big misnomer is that there are people that think, oh yeah, this is all the same thing. You know, that's been going on this entire time. It's, it's incredibly different. And whenever people say, no, like that can't be, or, you know, I would say, I I don't, you know, being a tasting a few hundred people, how many of you drink sherry? Like three people raise their hands. Well, if you're not drinking sherry, who do you think is driving this market for the maturation, you know, of what's going into those barrels? And it's kind of, it's a little bit eye-opening, I think for people sometimes to realize what we like about sherry matured whiskeys right now doesn't probably have anything to do with Spanish oak um, or with Oloroso having been in it for 20, 30, 40 years. Right. And I, yeah, you, I think you're spot on with that. There are a lot of different things that have changed over the years with, you know, grain styles and, and wood, wood management and all that. And I do want to start trying a couple more things that are in Spanish oak. I think I've tried plenty of things in French oak, specifically limousine, but French in general, Misenara, American Oak, of course, from different regions. Um, I can't get behind Gariana. I just don't like Gariana. But um, 
also Jamaican allspice wood. It's hard to find things like the Tennessee Tasters has one that's in there, but it's hard to find because it can only be from Jamaica. But um, tasting different wood types and seeing what those impart can also really expand the flavor profile. And to your point, what do you get with what kind of lactones you're getting? Is it more of a coconutty thing or is it more suntan lotion, you know, and that will really depend on where is that all coming from? What's it been exposed to? What's the cycle look like? It's life cycle look like. Um, so with, um, chair is squeaking like crazy. Uh, I can't hear it. Oh, you just well, outed yourself. You just outed I your did. chair. I did. I did. I'm sorry. I will, <laughs> I will oil you later. I'm sorry. I'm speaking <laughs> to the chair. Um, so with, um, with, uh, sherry production. So when did we really see this decline and a coming out of fashion to drink sherry? I think it's going into, that's probably, I mean, it's kind of hard to pinpoint, but you're, you know, it's not like people really drank it in the state. I mean, you really have to look at UK consumption because in the States, it would have traveled over with people coming from the UK around that same time period and not necessarily expanded all the way across the US. Um, But I would say even kind of going into that Mad Men era, that kind of like cocktail era, that vodka era, the more like wanting to drink, you know, more neutral spirits and things. Um, I think really fell out of favor. You know, there are still people that drink a lot of sherry, but they're probably 80 or 90 years old. (laughs) And I'd like people to get more into it. It's so brilliant, but I mean, it really does. It definitely takes food, but so I'd say you're kind of like, you're really falling off in the forties and fifties. And uh, I, I forget whether it was on air or before we were talking, I was talking about, you know, the first time I even heard sherry was walking, watching Frasier. And every time Niles came in, Niles, a sherry, you like that? Does that make it seem cool or hip to you? No, no. <laughs> um, it makes it seem funny to me, but um, yes. I, and I haven't been, able, I have tried to look this up and I haven't been able to find an answer. Um, so I'll throw it to you. What kind of sherry do you think they were drinking or were, I mean, were showing to try to drink? You know? I, I still think it was a lot of Oloroso sherry. I don't think, you know, it's, it's pretty, Fino doesn't really like, it doesn't last that long. So you still had things, you see people pouring it. It was in decanters. It wasn't well sealed. It wasn't like they kept it refrigerated for a lot of that time. We didn't have refrigerators. So, I mean, think about it. It had to be something a little bit more fortified, a little bit bigger as something like Oloroso starts to go off. It's not poison, but some of the sweetness in those things intensifies. Some of the rancio intensifies. People would still drink it, you know? So there's, I I think it was largely Oloroso and PX. It would have been getting into those darker, bigger and Amontillado as well. Really Mm -hmm. those three would have been the ones that wouldn't show off notes, you know, or or go completely bad, you know, before people could finish drinking them. Fair. I'm going to have to grab a couple um, because now I have to do a tasting of them for you know with for myself and with people because i can't drink six seven bottles of sherry by myself i could but i'd fall behind on way too many things so there's so much to do and i think too one other point david that is interesting because you talked about this a little bit earlier is talking about flavor development in barrels you know and and the number of uses yes super important but I think maybe even more important, and one of the things that has really, really changed in, I don't know, maybe like the past, let's call it 30 years, when you think about shipping a bourbon barrel intact to Scotland, mm-hmm. that is not nearly as common now because you can ship over five times as many barrels if you break them down to staves. If you break them down right. into staves, you've got dry staves. Once they arrive, you coop a completely different barrel, but there's mm-hmm. no integrity to the bourbon that's in it. It's kind of what the bourbon did to the wood and what's left in the wood and the, you know, the char and the red layer and all of that. The very different animal, if you're choosing the added expense of wanting the integrity of the bourbon or the integrity of the sherry to be left in place 
through that transport. So you're going to actually leave the barrel wet. It's going to tread, it's going to move over quickly. You're actually going to get potentially even some of the liquid that's still left in the barrel, but you're certainly going to get some of like what's left wet in the staves is going to be very impactful to the whiskey. So, I mean, I think that there's a lot of variance in terms of bourbon's impact, former bourbon barrels impact, Mm -hmm. um, you know, whether they're hogsheads or rebuilt barrels or whatever it is. And I think the same thing in terms of sherry, you're going to get very, very different influences. So just to tease people a little bit, which uh, I promised we would do before we started talking, which is, um, you know, a couple of the other topics that I had on for money uh, before we start are, you know, how's the American finishing scene going? Because we think of sherry, we immediately associate with scotch, um, maybe a couple other states, but really not the U.S. As you were saying, you know, we, the U.S. was never a big drinker of sherry. It was mainly European drinkers. <clears throat> so, you know, how's the American finishing scene looking with sherry, with other finishes as well? But I'm particularly interested with sherry. And then how does American single malt fit in? Because now you've got you know, malt-based whiskey being in American style, whatever that means, distillery by distillery, and then finished in a sherry uh, or any other cask. And what does that what does that mean for the finishing scene as well? So there are a couple other topics that we're going to hit on. Um, well, Scott Pete, I mean, there's you are a fount of information, so we've got a lot of things that we can go into. But before we, you got to fact out, check me after, and then call me on all my bullshit next time, and then. We'll really dive into it. I mean, I might do that off air. I'm not big on calling people <laughs> on bullshit. Like, you know, I'll, I'll I'll mention that something was wrong. I don't. I didn't pick up on anything wrong so far, and I'm certainly not in a position to be like, I think that sherry producers. I don't think they're dumping it down the drain. I know they are, so I'm not going to fact check you on that. But um, so one of the last things to ask was, you mentioned that a lot of these. I shouldn't say a lot because I don't know the number or the percentage, but a number of sherry producers are really just producing sherry to season barrels that are then sent to Scotland. And then the sherry is just dumped because there's not the market for it that it was, uh, is in some ways I'm kind of surprised by that because I think of, I think they would want to showcase their product. They want to say it was made from this bodega in Hereth and, uh, I promised myself I was going to say that right. This bodega in Hereth that, um, paired well with this particular scotch distillery or this malt style or this smoke style. But we don't see that. We see a really a, 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 a tarp thrown over it. We don't know where the sherry casts are coming from other than that area because they have to be from that area. Mm-hmm. We don't know what the bodegas are with the with very rare exceptions. Like I look at um, Redbreast from Ireland doing the Lustau edition. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, it's very difficult. And I like the idea that you proposed, which is you should try the sherry, you should try the wines and the finishes by themselves. So then you understand what the whiskey is being finished in. But I do see that there's a barrier to that just because we don't, we don't know in it's, many cases where it's coming from. I, I think to have the, the, the phrase that you just use, like throwing a tarp over it is brilliant. And, and I think you're exactly spot on. Part of what I did when I lived there is I was providing a, a bridge, kind of a throughput from the Scotch whiskey industry into the sherry industry, because they literally do not speak the same language. But when largely in Spain, from their perspective, all the reason that everybody's buying these barrels is not about respect for the liquid that was in them. Mm-hmm. It's about what it does to the wood so that they can mature scotch in them. 
And then from like the Scottish side, it's like, oh, we're kind of over drinking the sherry part. And you guys are just making this crappy cooking sherry and dumping it down a drain anyway. But like, thanks for that. And it makes our scotch taste really good. So it's like over time, all that kind of mutual respect kind of fell off. Because I think that used to be much, much more common that you would really know who those producers were. But I guess I'd pose a question to you. I mean, do you think that drinking that red breast finished in Lusau causes someone to go buy a bottle of Lusau? Most people probably not. Right. So then is it worth, you know, is it, is it worth doing that? I love the idea. And I think if you could actually figure out, you know, where this thing came from, you and I are a level of nerd that most people will never approach. I think that's really fascinating. I follow a lot of these, um, the Coopers there are called Tonelerias. And so there's a couple that I follow even on Facebook and you can see projects that they're working on and like what they're doing and, you know, all these other things. But I think largely people don't care and that on both sides, they don't think that people care. And, and I would say the same yeah. thing, actually, even in like American finishing, you know, bourbon finishing, anything else, like to know the specific wine. Um, I got an example, you and I were talking about it right when we got started. Hill Rock has, mm-hmm. you know, a distillery that we work with in, in upstate New York. They have very high level relationships with people that produce red wine, Napa Cab, that's $300 a bottle. When you're producing a $150 bottle of whiskey aged in a barrel that held $30,000 worth of wine or whatever it is, that's appealing on both sides. You're a person who can afford to drink a super premium bottle of American malt or bourbon whiskey, but also the land grab is is getting that cab drinker to want to drink that whiskey. So it's, it's different. Like you're not going to grab a Lustau drinker is not going to go, oh, I'm going to spend 150 bucks on this bottle of red breast. So it's like, it's just... Yep. It's, it's, it's just interesting times. If we, I think that if the scotch industry or the sherry industry thought that it would drive more business, they would probably happily disclose that information. I just don't know if it actually would work. I know. I really hope they do. I know we're coming up on time, but um, I really hope they do. Like there are a couple of distilleries that I'm going to be talking to um, ironclad, which probably be an episode or two before this one out of Virginia. They do a petite Verdot uh, finish. We know which winery is flying Fox winery. I tried to get the bottle of petite Verdot. They're out, so I got to wait till next year's harvest, but uh, next year's vintage. But we'll see. Uh, but the point being that you can, in that case, you can taste what the actual wine is. You can taste the intentionality, which I know is a um, a big thing, and is also another one of the episodes that we may uh, do in the future, all about intentionality. So, um, with that, uh, you know, we'll close out because I want to have a minute or two after to uh, make sure we're all set going forward. But in the meantime, you know, Monique, thank you so much for coming on for giving us this really, you know, uh, quick, but deep dive into what Sherry is, what it means for whiskey, the kind of state of the industry, if you will, between Sherry and Scotch and what it means. Um, also just exploring the history of it. And um, I really look forward to having you back on in the future for hopefully many episodes to talk about many other things with other guests, without other guests, you're always welcome on. So thank you for coming on. Thanks, David. I appreciate it. This is a lot of fun. This is a good, good cap to my day. I'm not normally drinking whiskey at the end of my Mondays, you know, but today was a great excuse too. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so, you know, in the meantime, um, any, um, any uh, social media tags you want to throw out any, uh, website yeah. or anything nope i've gone kind of like dark i'm on all the social media stuff but i stopped posting something about COVID just like knocked it out of me i just i hit like on things which i enjoy but that, I'm, I'm out there people can find me if they want all good all good and i'll uh, put a couple links to you know wine bow to um some of the things we've talked about 
in the episode. But thanks so much, uh, Monique, for coming on. Um, as always, follow Whiskey Ring Podcast, uh, Whiskey My Wedding Ring for tasting notes, uh, putting out every day now. So uh, keep up those website visits because they really do help. Um, with that, see you next week. <laughs>